we've seen everything from espionage accusations, Chinese ownership, built-in phone home algorithms, cyber vulnerabilities, and now government sanctions. There's just so much to delineate. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Security in Focus podcast, hosted by Umbrella Technologies. This podcast is dedicated to the truth about security, entrepreneurship, and business, not in that order. Here's your host, Thomas Carnival, founder of Umbrella Technologies. When I decided to start this podcast, I really just wanted to talk about some of my interests, my three favorite topics, that's security, entrepreneurship, and businesses. And I only really wanted to do it with people whom I like and admire. So I'm super honored and help me give a big warm welcome to John Hanovich, the founder of IPVM. John, thank you so much for being my very first guest. Happy to do so. Let's get it on. So I wanted to really just dive in. Um, and you've been covering this essentially from the beginning. And it has taken forever for it to make national headlines, but it finally has. And that's basically the involvement and influence of China on American security. And it strikes me that still today, there is still a lot of pockets of unawareness, misinformation, even though, you know, we're getting government's involvement heavily now. And I'm hoping for the audience, you can kind of break down what has gone on with these two Chinese manufacturers, Dawa and Hikvision primarily. Like the whole story from the beginning? No, not the whole story, like major bullet points, because I'm hearing a lot of different interpretations from people on this topic. I think a great place to start are these companies' involvements in human rights violations, which has made national headlines recently. So the interesting thing is uh, there's a province, uh, it's in the far west of China, uh, Xinjiang, that province, that's where there's reports of, you know, a million or multiple millions of people in internment or concentration camps. There's been a massive amount of security spending there, massive in the terms of like multiple billions of dollars. If you think about it, like that province, I think, has a few tens of millions of people. So even by, by PRC or China standards, it's relatively small population, but it's spending more. Like, for example, to give you a sense of how big the security spending in there. Dawa probably sold more in Xinjiang province, one province in China, than they did in the entire United States last year. Dawa has hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in projects. Uh, Hike Vision is a few hundred dollars, hundred million dollars of projects that we know of. The PRC is not good about disclosing sort of who wins which projects. But even with the limited amount of information they provide, we've cracked over a billion dollars of projects in that province. And so that's that's kind of the the basis of that. I mean, a lot of things I think, especially in the industry, there's less awareness of, of what exactly is going on. But you know, so for some of the interesting things that are interesting, uh, Hike Vision has a contract that was publicly disclosed where they did facial recognition to 900 plus mosques. What's interesting about this is that if you think from the perspective of the mosques, they don't want to have that facial recognition, right? It's of no benefit to them. It's it's the counter, right? The issue there is that they're forcing facial recognition into these mosques and they're using it such that you use the hike vision facial recognition then you say like, okay, who's coming to the mosque regularly? These people are likely to be enemies, quote unquote, of sort of the, the China Communist Party. And those people need to be sent to, quote unquote, re-education camps. So surveillance technology, video surveillance technology is at the core uh, of what's going on in, in Xinjiang. 
being used, you know, across the country. But Xinjiang is in many ways considered like the laboratory of sort of doing all these types of social experiments using technologies. Uh, for example, with Dawa, who has one project alone is more than $600 million uh, contract. And they're building what, again, uh, the PRC likes to call convenience police stations. Those police stations are not convenient for the people being put into these concentration camps and tortured, uh, but they are very convenient um, for the CPC uh, and their police to be all throughout their cities. Uh, and Dao is actually building and managing uh, these convenience police stations, among many other surveillance projects that they're doing. So both of the companies... Uh, are pretty significantly and directly involved. There's actually, interestingly, there's there's pictures of Dawa's chairman smiling at like groundbreaking ceremonies in Xinjiang. And Dawa actually has said nothing. Hike Vision at least is sophisticated enough to say like, hey, we respect human rights and we're going to look into this, you know, we promise. Uh, Dawa basically has just put, or put their head in the sands and hoping this goes away. That's unbelievable. And and that actually is making me rethink my 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 next question a little bit. I had assumed that the United States was basically the prize market of the video surveillance world, if, if you're thinking about it from a manufacturer's perspective. And so all the bad PR, the, you know, the, the forget the bot attacks that, that happened years ago, but the accusations of espionage, the actual U.S. government now imposing bans. Um, and, the, and the horrible PR the past 18, 24 months these two companies have gotten, what do you think their strategy will be to regain back into the United States market? Because I'm confident they're not going to give up. But if you're telling me that they're getting $600 million uh, deals in their own backyard at a crack, maybe I'll second guess that a bit. Yeah. So that's one of the really interesting things about this. You know, historically, the U.S. has been the largest market for most products. However, the PRC surveillance market is just enormous now. You look at it basically, for example, Hike Vision. Hike Vision is over $7 billion of revenue. 70% or more than $5 billion of that comes from directly within the PRC. So it's literally Hike Vision's China market revenue is at least 10 times greater than their U.S. market revenue. So... If you think about it from, from their perspective a little bit, like this is a huge headache for a little bit of business, right? This would be like, you know, like a customer that represents just a fraction of your business, like complains all the time, you know, you do a bad job, you know, you guys kind of suck. At some level, if you're hike vision, you're just like, listen, guys, like, you know, you're more trouble than it's worth. Now, on the on the other hand, uh, Hike Vision certainly, I think more than any company you've ever seen in video surveillance, they're determined to be number one in every market, whether it's Samoa or the United States or you know South Africa. They want to be number one everywhere. So, so why, if you're Hick Vision, then with that context, why, if you're Hick Vision, do you hire a cyber quote unquote cybersecurity lobbyist uh, or expert to be uh, to lobby on your behalf? Why do you sponsor NSA uh, keynote speeches from the SIA forums and events? Why do you go to these lengths to lobby and politic and buy your, your way back into favor? See here, why they do that? I mean, it's hard, hard to understand exactly their motivations, right? I mean, we have sources and we, we try to get intel on these types of things. You know, I, I think some potential motivations are 
it could potentially has greater implications than just the United States. I mean, one of the funny things that you see with Hike Vision, they'll say things like, oh, when the ban first passed last year, they're like, well, we don't really sell to the government anyway, so this is irrelevant. But they know that that's not true, right? Of course not. It's not just the issue of selling to the U.S. government. They're on GSA schedules. Well, I mean, I think the bigger thing is it's the validation beyond sort of like even if they're direct government sales, the U.S. government sales, right, was something basically like less than 1% of the revenue, which I'm pretty sure it is, right? It could be a fraction of 1%. The issue is a bit of a branding thing, right? Like, you know, you know, security manufacturers like, you know, wear a security MVP or some sort of trade magazine you never heard of gave us an award, right? They're always trumpeting these types of things. So if you look at it in that context, this is like the U.S. giving sort of DAWA and hike vision, the award, quote unquote, if you will, of like the worst company in the world, right? Like it's, it's a really bad branding thing. So I would think that that's one of their motivations is that they don't want the bad branding sort of umbrella that could basically impact other markets. So that I think would be one reason that you would want to defend against that is that you're not just concerned about the U.S. You're concerned about what would happen in Canada, what would happen in Europe. There's many other markets that basically this can impact. I mean, there's, for instance, the Financial Times just today, which is not a U.S. publication, it's a U.K. publication. Uh, and then last week, what was it? Uh, the, the Times U.K. had a report. So these types of things have sort of like you know, rolling ramifications in other parts of the world. So I think that's one of the reasons, basically, why they go to such great lengths. And then I think the other thing, especially look at what's going on in Xinjiang, is that if there were sanctions, right, that are being sort of discussed or reported, the sanctions are ready or they're being held, it's not clear. But I think it's fair to say even they acknowledge that there is a real risk that they might be sanctioned. The, the problem with sanctions for them, right, is that just what you're seeing with Huawei, right, there's lots of core technology that has ties back to the United States and could have them being blocked from accessing. I mean, the most obvious ones are Intel, NVIDIA, uh, Western Digital Life. So there's a number of big companies that they might not be able to buy from. And that would have implications not only in the U.S., but in the EU and potentially even inside of, of the PRC, right? Especially a lot of these deep learning AI analytics things that they're doing. NVIDIA and Intel are key players in this. And so if they were somehow blocked from basically being able to access this technology, it could have significant ramifications. Now, of course, they say, well, you know, we, we have our own stuff. We develop. It's like with Huawei said, oh, we, we don't care about Android. We're going to develop our own operating system by the end of the year, right? Is it true? Is it not true? You don't know how much is bluffing. But I think the reason why, and they've spent, you know, uh, $2 million or more at this point on lobbyists in the U.S. in the last two years um, is because they're concerned about the branding uh, and the supply chain ramifications. Well, that that uh, so yeah, that that's something I I just learned here in the moment. I really thought that um, most manufacturers were always battling over the U.S. market, um, but well, I, I do think most manufacturers are. I think that's sort of true as a point of fact. It's true as a point of fact, especially because the U.S. market, like you think when we know basically is you know in the U.S. Like people in the U.S. will like buy from any country, right? We don't care if it's like from Korea or Taiwan or Sweden or Germany or wherever, right? America is pretty good at basically, you know, we're looking for the highest quality, best value, et cetera. And so I think that's why it's so attractive for companies or for, for companies from, from all over the world. Um, the surveillance market, just because the unprecedented scale of the spending on surveillance right now inside of China uh, makes that a pretty distinct, basically... Uh, scenario. But now to your question, the other part that you mentioned 
was basically what's their strategy. It's not clear to me that like ever, for instance, for Dawa, Dawa is, and I've mentioned this on IPVM many times, is that they're just they're just a very poorly run business, like shockingly poorly run, the most poorly run multi-billion dollar business that I've ever seen. Uh, you, sometimes you see small companies, right, be poorly run, but usually when you have thousand employees and billions of dollars in revenue, usually you're pretty well put together. Case in point is basically Dawa saying nothing about sort of the sanction risks and their their contracts in Xinjiang. At some level, what can they say? Like, I mean, it's it's totally true, right? Like, it's not like, they can't basically like, oh, it's a mistake. You, that's the other Dawa. But I don't think Dawa overall is a plan. I think Dawa is doing better than the United States when they acquired the, uh, the FLIR Lorex team. And I think that's doing better in terms of the SMB market. And if you look at Hike Vision, um, their strategy, I think, for now is basically to hope this sort of goes away. And then in the meantime, just sell to the SMB. Uh, if you look at basically the consumer market, the Dawa and Hike Vision have never really done well in you know, Nest and Amazon, even WiseCam, right? They're using China hardware, but developing their own software. They've never really done well in the consumer market. And then the enterprise market's been a challenge. And now the enterprise market is really sort of shrinking, even for Hike Vision that had a little bit of position in the enterprise market. So yeah, I think the strategy, DAWA is no strategy overall. Uh, the US team strategy is customer service, go, go to the, the SMB, uh, and the high vision strategies re- retreat to SMB. Hopefully, sort of these things will blow over. You know, Trump will basically Trump will be sort of you know someone will basically knock him out of office. The new person who comes in will basically be happy and will sort of reinvade China. I-, I think that's the approach for now. It's amazing, and and, I, and I'm glad it's finally getting real coverage that it deserves because the Chinese ownership was a mysterious thing for a number of years, and now it's it's kind of becoming a resident fact. Especially when you it was I don't remember if it was a year ago, but you you actually posted some pictures of the Communist Party and the chairman of uh, who is what what is he like a secretary role in the Communist government? Well, Chen Zhongnin, he's possibly the most fascinating person in the entire industry. So you know, Mr. Who is, if so people in the American industry, they have an awareness of who Mr. Who is, because especially in the early days, Mr. Who did a lot of the deals directly in the United States. Quite a number of people know who Mr. Who is, and a lot of the Hype Vision employees have interacted with Mr. Who. Uh, but Chen Zhongnin is kind of the mysterious sort of man behind the scenes, but it's, it's pretty clear when you go to Chinese language publications that, you know, not only is the chairman, but he is the primary spokesperson uh, for Hike Vision within China. And he's been there from the beginning. It's not like, like, oh, they added this guy last week or something, right? Like, Hu and Chen basically were together. Uh, Chen was Hu's manager when they worked for the Research Institute of the Chinese government. So Chen has been there from the very beginning, and he's been their Communist Party secretary. Uh, and now last year, which is sort of amazing, he was elected to their to their national government, they have a National People Congress. It's roughly, I mean, sort of like our Congress, except people are, aren't actually elected and it's more of a rubber stamp thing. Nobody basically opposes the China Communist Party because if they do, they sort of wind up, you know, locked away and imprisoned. Um, but it's clearly quite powerful. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly a point of honor uh, and power for him to be uh, a, a delegate of the NPC. So, you know, not only basically is he chairman of Hike Vision, he's a Communist Party secretary, and he's a member of, uh, of the Chinese government. 
So it's it's I I don't know of any basically comp comparable. Like if you look at Dawa, like it's Mister Mister uh, Fu, right? And Fu basically is kind of like an operator guy, independent. Generally, from here, the things we hear kind of in various different places, right? They have their electric car startup now. So even from a PRC perspective, Dawa basically is nothing like Hike Vision in terms of the control, the connections. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we could probably have a podcast all dedicated to that um, in and of itself. But I, I, I definitely wanted to transition a bit to your your business and uh, your your journey in entrepreneurship. I, I've I consume so much of your content, um, and I make it required reading for for my people and my business, and through your training sessions as well. There's a lot of different trend lines you have in your content. One is maybe less talked about that I wanted to bring up is kind of you have this trend line of the grass is always maybe greener. Um, you talk about sometimes uh, executives leaving, going to other industries, salespeople going to other industries, even cyber security uh, coming into this industry and, and then on their way back out. I kind of was wondering. I think if you looked at like objectively speaking, if you looked at the 2014 to 2017 time period, definitely the grass was greener in other markets, right? Like just objectively so. Yeah. And then that a lot has to do with, you know, Hike Vision Dawa and the race to the bottom, which I think made it difficult for manufacturers and wasn't really great for integrators to have prices basically dropping, you know, 20% basically, you know, every six months or a year for a while. Yeah. So I think it was fair to say the grass was greener for a long time. Now, what happened with sort of the U.S. government legislation, the ban, et cetera, that I think that's helped the industry in some ways overall. But the bigger thing is, I think right now, we're seeing one thing that's really interesting that we've started really in the last six months, there is an unprecedented flood of startups coming into, into video surveillance. Every week, basically, we talk to a company, whether it's a U.S. company, EU company, company from Asia, like there's companies all over the place coming into the market. And so much of this has to do with the growth of AI and deep learning and the cloud. Correct. So, you know, is the grass always greener on the other side? No, sometimes it's greener. Right now, I think it's it's a greener time because not only the ending of the race at the bottom, even with, with Dow and Hike Vision, right, there's only so so much you can cut your prices. And I think they found it, right? Like once you get your prices to $50 per camera, it's like, it's not like it becomes sort of like the mount and the cabling becomes more expensive than the camera. So it's it really like you're not going to move the needle by going from 50 to 45, right? Especially in a professional setting where you have like to install and service and et cetera. So I, I do think the grass is increasingly green, even without looking at the uh, the China side, just the growth in AI and cloud and I think what that can do for the industry. So, yeah, I would say, again, just on a purely technology side, I think the industry reasonably uh, has a case for being much more optimistic. And, and with, the, with that note and with that point, yes, there's been a lot of startups in the commercial sector, but there's been an exuberant amount. If we have a time frame of, let's say, you know, Dropcam launching their first camera, which really basically started to create the do-it-yourself camera market. And then you had Ring, and then you had a dozen other players after that, you know, and Amazon getting involved and Google getting involved with their acquisition and Nest and then, you know, Dropcam Nest. 
So it, it makes me wonder when some of the largest tech giants in the world are investing so much in, forget consumer uh, commercial, they're just investing in surveillance and security technology, but there has been a clear division between consumer and commercial. Do you think it's possible that the Amazon, Google, or the, you know, the fangs of the world can, can take over in a meaningful way, the commercial market as, as they've started to do in the do-it-yourself space? Well, I don't think they're even really trying to, right? I mean, you look at based on the residential side, it's very obvious that there's a clear and direct play there. Right. And the commercial side, since they're not even trying, it's hard to basically make a case that they're going to win, right? They got to try before they can win. So given that they're not even really trying, I well, they did start to do services. Uh, Amazon did start to do like installation services, I think. Uh, but yes, I think that's also for residential. But in the installation are still basically, you know, one camera, two camera, eight camera type systems. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that that expanding that much in terms of like sixteen cameras, you know, thirty two cameras. More commercial jobs were like. You're much more concerned about the the operations of it and maintenance, et cetera. On the residential side, you look at like, I'm just looking at ADT stock quote. ADT stock is still at $6.14. And I remember what they wanted. They wanted to go public, I think, at 17. And then they went public at like 12 or something. And now they're down to six. And now they're buying integrators, right? Like if you would have told me 10 years ago that like, ADT was going to, again, this was the old ADT and whatnot, and they had integration. But if you were told me that ADT's big bet was on commercial integration, I would tell you you're out of your mind, right? Because ADT and all of these basically residential guys were always used to say like, oh, commercial integration is, is not a good business. And, I, and to be clear, I think they were right. 10 or 12 years ago, residential monitoring was a much better, just on a purely investor financial metrics basis was a better business than to be an integration, valuations, et cetera. So it's it's a bit shocking to me with that perspective in mind that ADT basically sees their boat sinking and their sort of like lifeboat is, is now commercial integration. And But I, I, at another level, they're probably right that like it's a safer choice to go into commercial because – when you look at like Amazon and Google, they're clearly more consumer oriented businesses. And then the thing of basically like selling to sort of like business solutions and enterprise sales, B2B, if you will, right, is clearly not as a core part of like who they sell and market to. So yeah, I, I think residential will, I don't want to say suffer, but will basically be severely basically impacted by the Silicon Valley, if you will, companies where the commercial space, certainly if you're looking sort of to 2025, right, it, it seems very, very unlikely that they're going to have significant inroads basically by that time. Now, who knows what goes in the, in the long-term future, but in the short term, I think there's a, there's a lot of safety on the commercial side. So, so when we're talking with end users, we still constantly see um, this confusion of why can't I just put a wireless camera in my manufacturing facility? Um, why can't I just do this and integrate it with, with that? And there's still just, a mis I guess, not, not enough education on the differences between what makes up a consumer camera and what makes up a professional security surveillance camera. And clearly on both sides of the aisle, there's a lot of differentiating features, sensors, lens, optics, low light capabilities, sensors, 
uh, you know, in, in socks. But if you could, you know, maybe summarize it for an end user, what would you say to an end user that wants to put wireless cameras or doesn't really know the difference between a professional and a consumer grade camera? A couple of key things, you know, to look at most of the, the consumer products are closed systems. Right. So I think that's one of the fundamentals that you get into is that it's fine. Like, you know, for instance, your house or something, if you have Nest, it's two Nest cams, a thermostat, whatever, and you really only care about that. Yep. But, it, but in, you know, in a commercial application, you know, how do you basically integrate different systems, cameras over time, buildings, floors, rooms, et cetera? And then I think there are certain things that, you know, in terms of you look at like video quality, like a lot of the consumer products have really short IR range. Like everything has every camera. They look great when you're standing at the doorbell, but outside of that. Yeah. So, if, you know, if you, they're made basically like if it's in like, you know, a small room, a 10 by 10 room, right? The IR is fine. But then you go to a larger area and then you realize like, wait a second, we were doing actually WISE, you know, the $20, $20 camera. So we've been doing some comparative shootouts between Wise and even sort of lower end things like, you know, hike vision camera, et cetera. And one thing you clearly see from a commercial, uh, even a lower end commercial camera is that you're going to have longer IR range and tends to be more even than sort of what you would see in a commercial and on a consumer element. And I think if you're just doing it for your house, like really all you care at that point is like, oh, like that's my kid or my dog or whatever. Exactly. But was the package delivered on time? You no, know, in, in a commercial situation or, you know, an enterprise or industrial situation, it often it's basically who is that person, right? And you're trying to make it out. And so, so details count. So I think, you know, image quality, we talked about openness, um, you know, wireless is notorious, you know, for, for working poorly in any type of larger environment. Wireless for homes is generally easier for an apartment because you're talking about a thousand square feet or something, right? But when you're talking about commercial areas, like even our facility, we have 8,000 square feet, right? An 8,000 square foot home would be, you know, enormous, but like 8,000 square feet for a business is not very big. But then you need to basically make your systems work over those sort of larger areas. And that's where things like wireless or basically just plugging in sort of like we're not using PoE, right? Because a lot of consumer gear is, doesn't use PoE. That's fine if you're just plugging in one camera to the wall or two cameras basically in your living room or whatever. But if you're now starting to do, you know, 20, 30 cameras, these types of features, whether image quality or PoE, things of that sort, become sort of, you know, more important uh, for longer term, larger systems. Hmm. And, and your readers, I mean, of course, there's some consumer elements and interest to, to your platform and your content at IPVM. But for the most part, I, I think your subscribers are end users, manufacturers of cameras, maybe access control a little bit, um, distributors and system integrators. Isn't that, isn't that fair to say in your subscriber base, those are kind of the primary, I'm sure you have some investors or... You know, I think most ways. 90, whatever, 9% are people doing things that are sort of like commercial, industrial enterprise. Right. Once in a while, a homeowner will sign up for being like, wow, this is great. But that's obviously uncommon. Yeah. Every, and every so often, you have someone say like, you know, like I, I can't pay basically $199 basically. Like I just want one camera in my house. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fair. But like, obviously... IPVM isn't designed for someone who wants one camera in their house. Exactly. So, you know, even with end users, like growing probably more significantly than any other segment is end users. Interesting. But generally we see, you know, larger end users, right? Like, if, again, if you're putting four cameras, it's not really a big deal. 
But if you're doing hundreds of cameras, right, then like the types of things that IPVM talks about, like where technology is going and what works better or worse, those then become much more important for people deploying lots of cameras and, and more complicated systems over a longer period of time. In this context of um, commercial, I, I want to talk a little bit about the value chain here for the end user. So what is more likely to be weakened in the coming years as it relates to commercial security supply chain manufacturers, distributors, security system integrators? These are all you know, the three key delivery mechanisms for the end user to get a installed, sophisticated security system. So so where is the weak point potentially? I'll ask you, in the Chicagoland area, what's the average rate for security technicians? Uh, 125 bucks an hour, I'd say. That's what I would think. So I, I think that points to basically like sending a guy on site to do basically, you know, basic task X. That's where I think is going to be chewed into. Yep. You're going to always need basically people to physically be for certain types of elements. And I think you'll need basically people who really know what they're doing. But that por- portion of the middle where basically integrators are going out and are just being paid $125 an hour to like physically do basic things or mid-level things, uh, I think that's the area that, that's basically risk being attacked. I think you look at it basically, you know, what's going to cause that. I think a lot of this is cloud management, right? Where these things basically, and I think some of it is, is even worse when you look at a, at a Ricotta, right? Is that like, the manufacturer then essentially acts a lot like the integrator because the, the manufacturer can just go in and change settings themselves. That's right. Of course, though, so I think still for larger systems, you're going to want to have like an expert who's like independent of basically the supplier, who's your person, your expert, you know, giving you advice about like what you should use and how it should be optimized and what are the problems connecting these things together. So I think the, the greatest risk is for integrators and especially integrators who charge $125 an hour, but really aren't all that expert. You're one of these sort of like, these sort of like lower level installer and you're charging $60 an hour. Maybe that's fine just in terms of, because you need someone to basically mount things or connect things or take things down. Um, And you'll definitely still want to pay people $125 or $150 or $200 an hour for people who really know what they're doing, right? Like the guy, the the guy or the gal who's the the guru or the expert those are the types of people, right? That they'll still be a lot. Have of the manufacturer certification. Yeah, I think. I think you know, one of the things I think. I think beyond manufacturer certifications, is, and there's one thing. Maybe I think we're going to talk about this later, but I'll touch on it now to start. Is that one thing I think that integrators can do to defend against this is to really establish themselves as truly being experts. Yep. And not experts in the way like I think you know whatever like you're Axis certified or Hike Vision certified. Let's let's be clear here. If you're Axis certified, that doesn't mean you're an expert. You may be an expert, right? I'm not saying like getting an Axis certification doesn't make you know no one with an Axis certification is an expert. It's going to help the install go better, but outside of that, it doesn't make you an industry expert. Even for things like IPVM training, right? Like we're not training you to be the expert. Like we're tra- our training is more advanced than what you would ever get from manufacturer training in terms of sophistication technology that we talk about. But I'm talking about even above that, basically that like that you're really sort of a, a master, if you will, of the trade. Uh, and that's one thing we we found sort of interesting. One thing we do a bad job. We don't do. We should do more quizzes. 
Because one thing we do with quizzes, a lot of people think they know what they're doing. And then when you like ask them, like for instance, smart codex is a topic. Sometimes you'll ask an integrator, well, like explain to me how a smart codec works. And they're like, well, it, you know, it, it compresses the video and it, you know, does it like, but they don't understand basically like what's going on, what the key technical elements. And it makes a difference, right? Because certain things, whether it's smart codecs or shutter speed or whatever the topic that you're talking about, how you configure it or how you use it has impacts basically both on bandwidth consumption and quality issues, et cetera. So processing power, yeah, yeah, potentially as well. So that I think like when you look at IPVM that like, and I think we basically, and we spend a lot of time sort of, you know, communicating or publicizing things online because it's a core part of our business. But I think that's one thing that integrators could do. I, I think you'll see that like really good integrators will get more and more remote business. Even if you're based in, you know, you may be doing a system in Western Massachusetts, but be based in Chicago, or you may be doing a system in, you know, Virginia, but you're based in Tampa, uh, especially as more of these things are sort of cloud enabled and things can be done remotely. It'll be like, you know, historically it's been like, well, like I'm in Topeka, Kansas. You've got to come into my, you know, command center and you have to do this inside of my office because that's the only place you can physically access it. So if you're a genius at security technologies, but you're based in Chicago, like, well, that's great, but I'm in Topeka, Kansas. So I, th- I think things like that will change to the benefit of, of better integrators that can really show that, like, hey, we can basically do, th- you know, you see the same thing with software development, right? Where I think software development has certainly become more internationalized because some of it can be done virtually. Um, so I think you'll see more virtualization of sort of the, the integrator role uh, which will help better integrators that can basically prove their expertise. Hmm. You know, you kind of answered part of that question. What is the biggest missed opportunity for security system integrators? And I'll start answering it. It's it's continued investment in expertise. Um, but I also think that if you don't continue to invest in that expertise and, and uh, without letting people know about it, which I think integrators are notoriously horrible at, example, marketing, um, that you're wasting your time. You have to be specific about niche. I think focusing on a niche core area of expertise is going to be uh, very critical for the future of security consultants and system integrators. One of the things we see with integrators, most of the marketing is really generic marketing. It's like, you know, you should use PTZs or multi-images or whatever it is, right? And it's very generic. It's like, this could have been written by you know, like someone on Fiverr, right? Or some sort of someone who just Googled for like five minutes. Yep. I think if, if you're going to sort of prove that you're an expert, you have to write expertly. And that's one of the challenges, right? Is that like, well, okay, that means your top people who were who in the field sort of, you know, billing out are actually sometimes not in the field and they're actually writing these things and they're publishing or they're filming videos or whatever it is, basically. You know, we even look at that when we think about how we market, right? That's why we don't have like a marketing person or an outdoor. You are you are building up the Facebook posts and you're starting to do more video content, though I've noticed that. So yeah, so that's true, but I, I think I think the difference is we're afraid to get like a generic marketing for like a PR agency, right? Like we don't want to get like a PR agency that's just gonna write fluff. Sure. Now, I mean, the, the fluff thing sort of works like, you know, like you've got the former trade magazine editors who now basically sell themselves basically to sort of, you know, do uh, ghost ridden pieces and trade mags. 
that I think is totally old school. I, I, you look at their numbers and when you look at like the trade magazine numbers, it's pretty clear. Very, very few people read trade magazines regularly. And I think part of it is that people online, they're looking for basically, there's so much competition. I don't mean just saying things like video surveillance security. There's so many interesting things being put online in all different types of spheres, whether it's sports or politics or news or whatever, that like, if you're just going to write like, you know, my camera is really super great and it produces good images and da 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 da. Like, how many people are really going to read that? I think it's much more important that you can differentiate by providing basically insights that are above and beyond what, what any other people are providing. When you started in 2008, there was a meaningful problem of getting access to quality, real information. And fast forward to today, it's only a bigger problem, not just in our industry, everywhere. It, it's become completely mainstream that even if you're selling, you know, knitted Christmas sweaters out of your out of your kitchen as your startup business, you are told to preach content marketing, content marketing, and create all kinds of everything. And so it's but for most integrators, most integrators, the noise has become louder. Yeah, but I think in this industry, most integrators don't even try to do content marketing. I remember a couple, a couple of years ago, like one one uh, one guy, he got really mad at me because I told him like, "Hey, you should have a website." And he was like, "How dare you to tell me that I need to have a website?" And I was like, "I'm not trying to be. I'm not. I mean, I was I was shocked. I was what? Right? What year was this? Wait a second. What what year was this? Uh, this was only a couple of years ago, maybe 2016 or something. Yeah. What a horrible recommendation in 2017 to, to have have a website. Yeah. So it was, and then I said, like, listen, if you're not gonna have a website. Like, have like have like a LinkedIn or a Facebook page. He's like, I'm too busy. Like, you know, I'll use my AOL account. I'm like, <sighs> really angry. And I was like, I think you know, at some level, listen, I don't think he's totally wrong because like at some level. If he has business now, if he has more than enough business than he can do now, that's fine. It's a risk sort of long term because if you want either to expand or that business may sort of subside, right? That like, because other people, as they look for people, right, they may basically look like, you know, when I look for things online, if I'm looking for something, I'm going to search online, right, for like different things if I'm looking for different services. So if you don't have a web page or something, you're pretty much out of luck, right? Like it's going to be hard for you to be considered unless somehow someone you know already uses you. But that, you know, that sort of so dramatically sort of limits basically your potential market. But I, I do think that that is an all too common issue with integrators. One thing we, we did, a, so you did some, a survey with some statistics and it was like integrators, one thing was really interesting, integrators turned out to be, I don't think surprisingly, to be pretty highly risk averse. In the sense that, like, I think we asked them something like, you know, would you rather, like, grow faster or make more profits? And, like, the clear answer was, like, make more profits. So right. it's like, but that's, of course, the challenge, right? Like, if, if you take more profits, especially if you're taking cash out of the business, you know, how do you build the business unless you're putting more cash back in? I mean, one of the really good things, I think, when you look at startups is that startups, basically, they lose a lot of cash by definition, right? But that cash is being invested into either building a better product or service and sort of building sort of awareness and sort of brand with the market. You know, and I do, I do some of the challenges with integrators is that they often don't have access to a lot of money. Often these businesses are, are run basically their family businesses. So you don't have say like, oh, I have like access to like, you know, $2 million in private equity and sort of a five-year plan. 
Um, so I do think there's some inherent challenges in the way a lot of integrators are built, but I think it also sort of undermines their ability to compete in sort of a more internet centric, if you will, world. Well, adaptability. I mean, I think if you compare startups versus security integrators, I mean, they will flip on a dime if they've calculated and done the math that something isn't working. I think integrators would probably trend the opposite way, is that they would beat it into the ground until it doesn't exist anymore. The palette for change in, in security, traditional security system integrators is, is not very diverse. I think a lot of that is the case. I also think that a lot of them are basically content as is, which I think at some level is fine, right? Like in terms of what one's priorities are, if, if you're a VC funded business, then like your priority is making the VCs happy and you becoming sort of a multimillionaire or else you'll go out of business. Yep. Whereas I think a lot of integrators are like, you know, it's, it's like being a, potentially an accountant or a plumber, right? Another basically either a professional or a trade that like, hey, this is my business. I do this basically to make a living. So I think those those are those are one of the challenges. And even basically, you see these roll-ups basically with convergent ADT and whatnot. It's just amazing. There are literally thousands and thousands of independent integrators throughout the country, right? In all sorts of regions, uh, et cetera. Who controls the end user more? Is it the manufacturers or is it the you know independent security integrators? I, I worry at the word control. I guess got yeah. I mean, recommend. So like, you know, what what ultimately whatever brand or whatever solution the end user uses, do you think the influence is more with manufacturers on the end user, or do you think the influence is more from the system integration market? It, it depends. I think the best the best answer would be that it depends on the size of the end user. One thing that's become very clear is that enterprise end users work and talk directly with manufacturers. Whether or not the deal is sold through, directly through the manufacturer, if you're basically a, a company or organization that has a thousand cameras or five thousand cameras or whatever it might be, something like that, almost certainly you're going to have many manufacturers going in directly and pitching the deal. Now, may may say at the very end, like, okay, I'm going to sort of sell it through ADT or. XYZ or whoever the integrator is, that's definitely, I mean, you see that across the board, Axis and Vigilon, you know, pretty much all of them now at this point have salespeople that are focused on calling and pitching end users. And I think that's, you know, I think the boat is sort of passed on that. I think there are a bunch of integrators that are still kind of upset about that because of the question of like, you said control, like whose customer is it? Is that my customer? Is that your customer? Is it both of our customers? And almost certainly, I think all the manufacturers have learned at this point that like, well, like we're not going to win these deals, these big deals, unless our own people are going out making the case. Otherwise, you're like banking that ADT or Convergent or JCI or Siemens or whoever basically is going to go in and make the pitch for you. And the reality is, right, for most manufacturers, they ain't going to be pitching basically for the manufacturer. They, they may have one of the manufacturers they pitch for, or they may be often you see integrated be like, hey, like, you know, whatever you think's best, we'll go with, right? We're just there to service and support you. So I think more and more of that, the, 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 the internet makes that so. Verkata is a great example of where they're moving this more down market. Though certainly a lot of these schools that Verkata is winning are, you know, thousands of cameras, right? So it fits perfectly in that sort of model that like, listen, if you have a thousand cameras and I'm a manufacturer, that's a deal that's big enough that I want to go after and have my own people directly involved. 
Uh, but I think, you know, look at the internet basically with webinars and email and newsletters and social media marketing and da 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 da, da right? It, it's easier now than ever for manufacturers to directly communicate with uh, end users, even end users that might only have a few hundred cameras. You know, when we first got into the industry, I, I think a lot of it used to be like, well, you know, we're, I'm going to be in, you know, Houston, uh, you know, three weeks from now. Can I set up an appointment? Right. That was literally it. Right. Because otherwise you do a phone call, but it, it's not, you know, not very sort of useful just to do a phone call. And now, obviously, these things have changed, right? You know, basically, if I want to know in Houston, who is the security manager, operations manager, facilities manager, whatever it might be, it's pretty likely that I'm going to be able to find it on LinkedIn. That's why you see so many salespeople, right, that are paying $85 a month for like LinkedIn premium, whatever they call it. Um, so you can have that type of intel and reach out to these people directly uh, and then do webinars, et cetera to sort of pitch your products directly. So I, I see that, you know, more and more continuing. And I, I think that's, you know, t- to the detriment of the historical role, or at least the, yeah, the historical role of what an integrator was, where, you know, the integrator would figure these things out and bring it back to the end user. Uh, you're seeing a lot more, and I think in general, when you talk about the internet disintermediation, right? The inter- the integrator has historically been the intermediary between the manufacturer and the end user and the internet, like it does from anything, like real estate agents, right? It, it, it enables basically people to connect directly or the buyer and seller to correct, connect directly uh, without having to use a real estate agent or the integrator uh, as exclusively as the uh, intermediate point. And, and with all these startups coming to market, some are going gorilla after the end user. They're using AI. They're using, we even talked about it the other day, uh, siren cams and cameras out of South Africa that shoot rubber bullets at people, all kinds of uh, interesting perspectives on you know how to secure a facility. What do you see right now with the influx of startups and new tech coming into the space? What, what are some promising trend lines, at least? You don't necessarily have to mention a brand or a a product, but what are some interesting trends and in technologies you, that are actually having some legs? Because you've actually reported multiple times, which is very true, that we had maybe it was that same period, 2014 to 2017, well, where it was the race to the bottom, where we had that lack of innovation. So now that we're in a better space now, do you see that innovation starting to up curve? And do you have any specifics on it? One of the things that I worry about with, with all the startups, most of the startups have like really bad business models. Right. Uh, in the sense that what they're trying to do, a lot of them are trying to sell like point solutions. And this, this has been done for years, right? When you try to sell a point solution, by, by a point solution, I mean something that's an addition, like, you know, you already have cameras, you already have a VMS, you already have this and that. You're going to add basically something on top of that existing system. It's a really hard sale and it's hard to scale the business because, you got to charge like a lot of money because you have a sales team basically just selling one thing. And an example of this, like we've seen a number of companies do like gunshot detection, right? It's hard. Basically, how do you sell basically scale selling gunshot detection when you've got to basically sell it individually to all these end users and then the larger manufacturers are essentially your competitors, right? Because if I'm an existing manufacturer, you know, especially on the VMS side, for example, I'd probably say to myself, well, you know, okay, you're selling gunshot detection. Well, why don't I just add gunshot detection and just sell it myself? I already have a relationship with this customer. So a lot of these startups are going to struggle. They're building, they're building a full product around a feature. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's interesting where, you know, we, we, I remember used to say like brief cam was a feature and not a product and brief cam was like the counter example that sort of proved this wrong. 
but it like, you know, it took them 14 years or whatever it was basically to do it. Uh, but generally when you're a feature and not really a product, it's really hard to sell it just the way basically this industry is built and how things are sold. I think actually now is a good time. It's funny to even talking with you. Now is a good time to sell a camera. Um, not just a generic camera or just, you know, a higher resolution camera, but a camera that has a AI. Like, I think it's better to basically, you're better off selling a camera that is AI embedded than basically trying to say like, Hey, I got this algorithm of the software and we're going to try to basically add it on and connect it and whatever. I think it's an easier sell. It's more revenue. You probably can get greater performance by controlling both ends. And if you look at Verkata, which I think is you know, just from a financial perspective, the startup that's doing the best so far, they're selling an end-to-end solution. Another company that we're seeing right now that's, that's working on selling an end-to-end solution is Vion, uh, V-A-I-O-N. They're a European, primarily European startup. I just got a couple LinkedIn requests from them this past week. Yeah. So yeah, they're building up a sales team. So they're, they're doing an end-to-end solution. Their difference is, unlike Verkata, which is famously and proud of being closed, uh, Vion is actually supporting OnVIF and, and is willing to be open. But I think it's a lot easier to sell when you're selling basically a whole end-to-end solution. Yeah, you're not going to be able to get into existing accounts that are like, oh, I'm happy with basically a Vigilant Milestone, Genetech, or whatever. But there's there's replacement cycles out there, right? And you're better off basically finding people or finding customers or end users that are looking to do a replacement uh, and going after them. Then you're trying to basically say like, hey, you know, I want to sell you this sort of analytics for $50 per camera per month. Because then you're, what you're saying is like, okay, $50 per camera per month or even $30 per camera per month, right? Now you need to find new budget. And this is one thing I learned when I when I was, did a startup 13, 14, whatever years ago, a long time ago. But the issue there was is that like, security is like, how do you find budget for new product? So it's one thing to say like, oh, like I need to replace my VMS, my recorder, my cameras or whatever. That's sort of a known standard budget thing. And it's much easier to say like, yeah, like we have this block of dollars and we were going to use it basically for cameras X and now we're going to use it for camera Y. Uh, But if you basically say, listen, well, you know, you have this sort of block of dollars and now by the way, I need you to get a new block of dollars in addition to the block of dollars you have that's a hard thing because right then you need to go back and now you need to sort of explain like, well, what's the return on this money? And then security has always famously the issues, which, you know, it's hard to justify the return. Are you reducing operational costs? You're reducing lost, you're probably not generating revenue. So I think those are the types of challenges when you look at with the startups. And again, you know, it, most of the startups are pretty new. They're a year, two years old. So they really haven't been selling that much yet. So I think they'll learn and they'll adapt basically in the next few years. And then you'll see basically how it, how it shakes out. Yeah, Avigilon did that. I mean, they were closed and closed and stubborn closed for so long. And then they realized that in order to um, own a customer, which is their goal, they're going to have to play nice with other technologies. And I still think Avigilon's tactic was better than like, for instance, Video IQ, who they eventually wound up buying. Like the whole thing of like, well, you're going to buy this video IQ camera. I know they did for a while the ICVR, the hard drive in a camera. It's a whole other thing. But video IQ was generally more of like, wasn't really a full end-to-end system. It was like, well, maybe I'll connect it to something else. I think that the Vigilon story proves out for like things like Verkata and at least my hypothesis for Vion is that it's still better to start selling a closed solution or end-to-end solution first 
or at least a camera, sort of like one dedicated piece. Even if you look at Cumulac, sort of the exact, the ex-exact team, right? They're not going to sell like an add-on. It's like when you sell Cumulac, it's replacing exact, right? It's pretty sure. clear. Both sides know basically what's going on. Well, let's not let's not pretend there's there's not a barrier to market for the startup to actually get their foot in the door. I'm sure they could code on VIF, but then if they want to have meaningful partnerships in a technology ecosystem and be like a milestone tech tech partner or a Genetech tech partner, there's a barrier to entry for that partnership. They're not just welcome with open arms. They got to still prove themselves first. So that actually proves your point that why spend your time getting through the technology barrier to enter entry when you should be focused on execution of your quality product, building up the customer base, then force demanding the technology ecosystem to respond. Yeah. And, and the technology ecosystem generally won't, right? It's usually, if you look at basically large manufacturers or large integrators, one of the funny things, uh, one of the funny things I've seen over the years, like, you know, when a startup says, yeah, we're talking ADT, we're real close. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not real close. Like there, you know, it's like the most famous counterexample to that was Eagle Eye. Eagle Eye had to spend $50 million to buy Brevo to get themselves into the ADT account. And that was a smart move, right? I'm not criticizing them for it, but that, that kind of shows you basically like it's really hard and, and rightfully so, right? If you're a large integrator, there's lots of like startups that come to you like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My thing, you know, works so great. And it's like, yeah, but your thing doesn't really work that great. And like, we're stuck servicing it. You know, if you guys, if, if the company, if the startup sort of has problems or fails or whatever, they need to deal with it, right? What do you do basically with this equipment that like has these problems or basically is now out of business? So I, I think there's a lot of rationality that, that, that many integrators are risk averse uh, with startups. Well, this has been fantastic. We've talked about China, uh, value chains, uh, startups, and politics a little bit in between. This has uh, been a great first inaugural episode. John, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, would you tell uh, the 2.5 people listening uh, where they can sign up to uh, review your content and, and where they can go to do that? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's ipvm.com. Everything's pretty much there. We've got reviews, news. We've got a discussion forum where people sort of debate things. We've got software, et cetera, so they can check it out there. And then if they ever need help, they can email uh, info at ipvm.com. I mean, I'm john at ipvm.com. I try to read as many emails as I can. Uh, but yeah, they can always sort of reach out. I'm happy to talk. Perfect. In the past five, six years, I'd add to that. There are classes from access control to networking and video surveillance to, you know, uh, software and server setup. And they're even doing new courses for business development and account management um, have really come on strong. So if you're a security system integrator thinking about getting um, your people more aptitude and experience in the field in the micro and the macro, go to ipvm.com. John, thanks for joining me, and it was really great talk. You got it. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Security in Focus, a service of Umbrella Technologies. For more information, go to umbrellatech.co.